0: Welcome back to another episode of Consciously Clueless. I'm your host, Carly, and I'll be your guide on this journey from consciousness to cluelessness and back around again. Today on the podcast, I talk to Nisha Heron fair Nisha is an author, researcher, and trauma-informed sex educator. She works almost exclusively with female survivors and those recovering from unhealthy relationships to help them reclaim a nourishing, authentic, and soulfully aligned relationship to pleasure that supports them to live purposely in every area of their lives. Her book, Fawn When No Looks Like Yes, is the first book to ever be written in the context of sex and consent. In addition to sounding the alarm, Fair attempts to answer the million dollar question how can sex and intimacy thrive in a post Me Too, post pandemic reality? Here we go. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? By now, you all know that therapy is an important part of my own self-care. It has truly been a game changer in every aspect of my life, including achieving goals. BetterHelp is the largest online therapy platform worldwide. They are changing the way people get help with Facing Life's Challenges by providing convenient, discreet, and affordable access to a licensed therapist. BetterHelp makes professional therapy available anytime, anywhere, through a computer, tablet, or smartphone. You can start communicating within 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional therapy done securely online. And I have a special offer for Consciously Clueless listeners. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Carly and join the over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. By using this code, you get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com C-A-R-L-Y. Take care of yourself today. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this podcast. Well, thank you again for joining me. I'm really, really excited to chat with you this morning.
1: Thank you for having me. It's great to be here.
0: Absolutely. So the podcast is called Consciously Clueless, and that is to express this journey that I've been on of wanting to find ways to be more conscious and feeling like I've got it. I have figured it out. This is the thing. And then those moments where life is like, don't get too comfortable and I'm just clueless all over again and just kind of that journey. So I like starting asking guests, where are you on a spectrum of clueless to consciousness right now in this moment? Um, I try to stay as clueless as possible as a rule. Love that answer.
1: Um, I think that uh, being in the not knowing is the most fertile place for growth and for connections and synchronicities and I just finished writing my first book and it's funny. People say, you know, you write what you know. Mm -hmm. What they don't say is that in writing what you know, you'll write what you need to learn.
0: Ooh,
1: ooh, ooh, (laughs) Ooh. In that process, I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about it Mm -hmm. today, but I really have come to this place where I have no idea what sex and intimacy even is anymore. Mm -hmm. In a really beautiful kind of curious way. Where I've really let go of all expectations, yeah, um, and have come to a place where you know I I can be really happy being clueless and being in the not knowing around sex and intimacy. I think Mm -hmm. the one of the things that I really push back on and work on with my clients is this experience of sexual perfectionism Mm. and the pressure we have to perform femininity or masculinity to perform yeah. a certain expectation of what our sexuality is supposed to be. Yeah. Um, and so that's something that I really, uh, have come to not have any obligation to meet after, after this process. And, um, it's something I encourage other people to push back against as well. So
0: yes, as clueless as possible. I love Hopefully. that. I really love that. Should I change the name as clueless as possible <laughs> of the podcast?
1: Um, so
0: let's start with the beginning. What is it that you do? You talked and um, you alluded to it a little bit, sex and intimacy, you wrote your first book. So give us, give us the overview. Yeah. So I've been an embodiment
1: coach for about 14 years now and about, it was 2016. So I guess about five years ago, I shifted into the, um, pleasure and intimacy space when Mm -hmm. I was recovering from an abusive relationship. Mm -hmm. And um, so that's mainly what I focus on. I work with a lot of women who have experienced any range of unhealthy experiences in sex and dating. uh, So that can range from uh, and relationships on the whole. So that could range from early childhood trauma to um, shady dating practices. To you know, full-blown abusive relationships. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, the one thing that we don't really talk about around unhealthy dating experiences and relationships is the assault that it makes on our sexuality and on our sensuality, on our ability yes. to be in our bodies safely, mm-hmm. and our ability to like experience things that feel good and be open to aliveness, to possibility in the world. You know, that shut down experience is so protective. So that's really what I focus on with folks. We do a lot of repatterning. I do a lot of movement and proprioception work, Mm. as well as uh, a lot of work around repatterning the voice around sex and intimacy. Um, So I'm going to actually just leave that because I feel like I just said a lot.
0: (laughs) Oh, that's great. I was like, yes, yes, yes. Um, So tell us then about the book that you just recently, Mm -hmm. congratulations, your first book. That's amazing.
1: Mm -hmm. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Um, So the book is called Fawn When No Looks Like Yes. And it's a real deep dive into the stress response of fawning. So fawning is one of our many stress responses like Mm -hmm. fight, flight, freeze, flop, faint. Mm -hmm. Um, And where, so I want to back up for a second and just note that all of our stress responses are purposeful. They all yeah. have a reason. They help us survive. Fight flight is really great for getting us across the street when there's yep. upcoming cars, but it's also really great for helping us feel motivated. And that little bit of a yeah. you know, that little bit of an edge can like help us accomplish goals and, you know, get our errands done. And yeah. You know, right. So um, it's when those stress responses are repeated daily, hourly, mm-hmm. and they become Patterns and then become more reinforced. They can start to uh, be really damaging for yeah. our health, our well-being, and our relationships. So fawning is part of the tend and befriend response, which was only just discovered uh, 20 years ago, and it's the response that's most common—the stress response that women, people in female bodies, tend to gravitate towards, both for cultural conditioning reasons, but also for biological and hormonal reasons. Mm-hmm. So, tend and befriend is like what we're doing right now—having a conversation, getting to hear each other, and like, you know, respond to one another's nice right. tones of voice and friendly conversation. But when that uh, t- response becomes again repeated over time, or when we're using it in a situation where it's not safe, yeah, for us to be our authentic selves, or we're in a relationship where our partner isn't seeing us or isn't listening to our concerns then again it can become really damaging um and the really tricky part is that where intimacy and sex especially is concerned we connect most readily with people when we're in a safe what i call parasympathetic ground so a yeah. really nice like available body attitude and when we're in these stress responses we can't um we're actually it represses our awareness our anger and our fear and all of our emotions and boundaries. Mm -hmm. So we can't be our authentic selves when we're running these stress responses. So that's a bit of background to talk about the book. And the book really goes into detail around how women especially are often, well, we're conditioned partly by what people are Um, to behave certain ways in relationship to men um, and behave certain ways in regards to our sexuality. Mm -hmm. And many people end up performing their experience of sex and pleasure either because they don't feel safe to express themselves authentically or because no one ever told them that they were allowed to. Yeah, or they don't even know what that authenticity is. Exactly. Exactly, because we're being fed this story
0: about, you know, this is what sex is right from porn, from society, from yeah, even social media, you know, like wonderful that
1: we have like all of these sex educators that are doing great work, but we're still getting this idea that, okay, so this is the right way as opposed to being like, well, is it the right way for me?
0: Yeah. So yeah, that's what the book is about. That's amazing. So it sounds like the book came out of you processing through your not only your embodiment coaching work, but out of your own experience. Is that correct? It it did. Well, so out of the five years ago, when I started
1: shifting into this work, I've started focusing on clients who were having similar experiences Mm -hmm. and no one was talking about this at the time. And so the Big sort of the resounding comment that I get from my clients is I had no idea this was a thing. I thought I just hated sex with him. Yeah. Oh my gosh, like I'm I'm normal. Yeah. <laughs> right. So um the book really came out of my own personal experience plus what I, you know, research with clients and on my own professionally. So
0: well, it sounds pretty amazing in the sense that you were able to take something traumatic and something that you worked through and turn it into your work and this product. How were you able to process through that?
1: Um, I have a real kind of trust the process approach to life. Um, I, uh, I'm really okay with with you know not doing things the right way. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, again, in terms of being like comfortably clueless, that was really a big part of the process and just trusting that this doesn't make sense and nobody is, you know, confirming that what I'm feeling is accurate. But at the same time, I have all of these other people who are confirming to me that there are many of us having the same experience. So um, it was really a kind of combination of me deep diving in my own work and coming back to what was happening with my clients. And then of course, you know, what the research tells us. So,
0: right. Mm -hmm. So what is, if you had to give a definition for listeners, what is authentic sexuality?
1: Mm. Authentic sexuality is, it's a process. Mm. It's not a defined destination that Mm -hmm. you reach. And it's a, for me, and what I try to encourage my clients is that it's a it's a daily changing, um, as subject to shifts as any other part of ourselves are. So, one of the concepts I work with in trying to help people uncover their authentic sexuality is the idea of um, choiceful rebellion, mm. and taking some time to really be intentional about what you push back against in terms of sex and intimacy. So where am I doing something because I just want to get it over with? Mm -hmm. Or where am I, you know, going along with something to keep the relationship alive instead of honoring my voice, honoring what feels authentic to me? Yeah. Yeah. And um, so between the pushing back against those things that don't feel authentic and really getting closer to what's true on a body level, um, that's, that's really a, a how we come to understanding what our authentic sexuality is. So it's sex positivity, but on a more um, psycho-emotional,
0: spiritual level. So it so, really does
1: entail all, all parts of self
0: have you, I'm imagining as you're working with people to work kind of towards this journey of authentic sexuality, how does finding out about your authentic sexuality influence other pieces of your life?
1: Oh my gosh. I love this question. (laughs) Good. (laughs) Oh, like you just like hit the nail on the head. So, um, Another piece with the with authentic sexuality and just understand your authenticity on a whole. Mm-hmm. You know, authenticity isn't this kind of nice to have. It's not some hashtag trendy little thing that, you know, <laughs> you put on a sticker. Authenticity is a survival need. Mm. So when I don't feel safe to be my authentic self, whether it's in bed or when i'm making dinner right right I necessarily present an altered version to my partner and to the world because i'm wow. trying to protect my authentic self so if i don't feel safe to be my authentic self i will automatically just repress who i am at a core level
0: mm-hmm. so
1: safety mm. is the real foundation for all of this um somatic intellectual, psycho-emotional, cultural safety, which is really hard to achieve. But the beauty of coming to and really deep diving into your authentic sexuality because sex and intimacy is so repressed Right. is that when we work on these aspects in the bedroom, we take them everywhere in Mm. the rest of our lives because we don't have, like, I don't have a different body when I'm having sex with someone than right. when I'm writing Right. So anything that I do on that level. And because sex and pleasure is so much more, how should I say, we are intimately and unavoidably connected to our aliveness when we're in experiences of sex and pleasure. Mm-hmm. Right. So the more that I can occupy that space and allow it to bleed into the rest of my life, the more I'm living in that place of authentic aliveness day yeah. to the day. And I want to say too, that, you know, one thing I really try to focus on is that pleasure isn't just about sex. Mm. You know, I am, I use the concept of coming into your pleasure body. Yeah. So I can be in my pleasure body when I'm forest bathing, when I'm walking my dog or snuggling her, and I can be in my pleasure body when I'm having a super duper awesome orgasm. Right. So it's really about taking down the walls and decompartmentalizing how we
0: understand our experiences of pleasure. Cause we think of them just like many other things. We think of them as all these separate columns. Like this is my physical body. This is my, like, you know, we think about like physical health and mental health. And I'm guessing then like, you know, maybe spiritual health and sexual health as if it is a separate pillar. And I think what you're getting at is that that's just not true
1: no and i think that the reason that working i see working on sex and pleasure pleasure work as a kind of umbrella it's kind of like i'm really big on doing whatever work is going to get to the root of all of the issues as Mm -hmm. quickly as possible (laughs) (laughs) oh it's like a it's it's kind of a lazy way in a way (laughs) but it's more effective. And the thing is when we're in our pleasure bodies and we're having sex or being intimate with another person, we're in our physical selves. We're in our spiritual selves, our psycho-emotional selves. We're in our history,
0: relational
1: history. So it's really a way of, of being in more of who we are by working in this way. So, um, and it, it's, because it's an area that's so repressed, it's really phenomenal. The amount of stuff that can come up when we're trying or starting to, to go down this road and and come into this process.
0: So you mentioned that idea of, um, you know, where these ideas come from, like, where are we learning how, or what, what messages are we receiving that are telling us to suppress this authenticity and whether that's, um, you know, the patriarchy is what I threw out um, and all these other places. Uh, it sounds like we're talking about heterosexual relationships. And I'm curious what like work maybe you've done with because we're all affected by those systems and how that can show up in other relationships and in authenticity.
1: Yeah, so most of my clients, well, let me say, all of my clients have been people in female bodies who mm-hmm. have sex with men. So whether they're uh, non-binary, cisgender, pan, Mm -hmm. bi, or straight, those are the folks that I have been working with. Mm -hmm. So the issue, because I focus mostly on fawning and performing and fawning is a uniquely hierarchical stress response. Mm. Can you say more about that? Yes. So we only fawn in relation to other people. We don't fawn When there's an oncoming car, when there's a falling tree branch, it's a uniquely relational stress response. Mm -hmm. So, and this happens like you know, we have something called social fawning as well. So, where people will in groups, hang on, let me backtrack. How? What's a great example for this? So, a good example for social fawning is women Mm -hmm. who may have learned that hating on their own gender affords them a certain amount of Protection or safety, or being viewed favorably by men inside yep. the patriarchal complex. Yep. So, anytime we have these hierarchies, we're going to see fawning and performing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So it doesn't matter whether it's a heterosexual relationship or right. same-sex relationship. Um, this is going to be at play. I talk about male-female pairs because that's where you automatically have that hierarchical dynamic that you can't escape. Interesting. Right? So yes, you can have, you know, two men in a relationship and one maybe more, you know, dominant or mm-hmm. controlling, which would create an issue of a hierarchical imbalance. Mm-hmm. Um, so without question, anyone who's human, animals even do it. This is a mammalian thing. So mm-hmm. animals want to. But um, I, in most of my work, I do focus on, instances of male-female
0: pairs, because that's where the most trouble is happening. <laughs> so what, to me, what I'm hearing is, and maybe this is just my advocate. I worked for years as an advocate for survivors of sexual mm-hmm. and dating um, trauma. And so maybe this is just like my advocate brain, in, brain coming back, but what I'm hearing is power. So really about fawning relationships is about a power imbalance between two people or between a person and a, a group. Is that kind of what we're getting 100%. at? hundred percent, yeah.
1: And the, this is why it's tricky because even healthy relationships, there can be fawning in those relationships because right. there's this inherent gender dynamic.
0: So it can be really tricky to, to unpack. Can you give some examples? Like, what does fawning look like? So people are like, I think mm-hmm. I get the concept. I'm understanding yeah. now for listeners, but what is what would that look like? I'm having a hard time, you know, conceptualizing that.
1: Sure. Yes. Thank you for asking that. So
0: mm-hmm.
1: fawning can look like people pleasing. Mm. It can look like um going along with something that you don't really want to do just to keep the peace not rock the boat. Mm-hmm. You know, um, another one is avoiding talking about your concerns in a relationship because you don't want to seem extra or needy. Mm-hmm. Right? Yes. <laughs> right. here. Raising our hands. Not, like all of these things, like it's there's in the book I have about a two-page long list of all of the examples of fawning. Um, another one that's really tricky for folks is when you're in a relationship and you allow their turn-ons to become your turn-ons because it's just easier that way. Ooh, Right. And that's tricky because we end up uh, wiring, training our arousal system to be turned on by something that isn't actually authentic to us. So there's a whole physiological process of needing to detrain our bodies to stop reacting to things that maybe we're not interested in, in being turned on by. And that happens for men too, you
0: know? Wow. Mm -hmm. Wow. The rewiring of what we even find pleasurable is wild. You're kind of blowing my mind right now.
1: Yeah. Do you want me to talk a little more about that? Yeah. Yeah, I do. (laughs) So here's uh, an example. And I mean, there's, there are, first I want to say, before I because I'm a big no judgment person. Yes. Um, we can be turned on by something. So let's let's use an example like choking. Mm-hmm. So um I can be turned on by choking because I like the feeling of it, the feeling of mm-hmm. containment it gives me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's all the reason I need to enjoy it. Right. I can be turned on by it because the first time it happened to me, um, my partner didn't ask for my consent. And my body had a physiological stress response because let's not forget that lubrication and arousal can be triggered through stress and trauma. Yep. these are physiological responses that don't necessarily need uh, an emotional consent related um, factor in order to Hmm. be triggered. So when we're starting to unpack, you know, our, are my are my turn ons serving me and are my turn ons authentic to me? Yeah, it's really important to be discerning and to I like to use the question: What are my choices wiring me for? Ooh. So if my turn ons are wiring me for more of what I want, more of how I want to show up in my partnership, in my relationship, in sex with folks, then amazing. Yeah, if my turn ons are actually making me feel less than, if they're preventing me from showing up in integrity and taking me further away from where I want to be. Yeah. Then that might warrant a little bit of inquiry. So it's not about, you know, moral imperatives. It's about how am I using my sexual choices to get me closer to being the person I want to be?
0: Wow. That question again, let's just say that. How am I using <laughs> my sexual choices to get closer to the person I want to be? That's a pretty big question.
1: Yeah. Right. And we don't, I mean, we don't have these questions. No one's asking us when we're growing up, like, does your partner care about your pleasure? (laughs) How, how do you
0: know they care about your pleasure? What is pleasure? Right. Yeah. I mean, really, I, I just, (laughs) now that you brought that up, I'm curious what, like experience you had growing up with sex Mm. and sex education, because I had, (laughs) I guess, pretty good comprehensive sex education in high school and didn't realize that that was uncommon until Mm -hmm. getting to college and talking to other people and their experiences. And me being like, yeah, our health teacher rolled a condom down her arm and said, don't let anybody tell you they're too big. This is how big they stretch. And I was like, your health teacher didn't do that. <laughs> like that's, that's not normal. And they're like, you wow. got to see condoms. I was like, yeah, wait, what? So I'm curious now that you do this work, like where, you know, what was that like for you growing up? This podcast is sponsored by TerraSeed. TerraSeed is on a mission to disrupt the vitamin industry, empower vegans and reduce plastic waste in the world. They put everything plant-based people struggle to get in an all-inclusive, vegan, compostable package multivitamin that replenishes them and our planet every single day. Seriously, y'all, win, win, win. Even if you're not vegan, this vitamin will help you get those key nutrients that you need. I am so excited to share a discount code for your first purchase. Use code CARLY50 at checkout to get 50% off. Again, that's... C A R L Y 5 0 for 50% off your first purchase at teraseed.com. Don't forget this code so they know I sent you. This podcast is supported by She Thinks. Thinks are washable, reusable period underwear. They look and feel just like normal underwear, but better. Every pair of Thinks is made with their signature, innovative technology for the ultimate period protection. Their breathable products are safely made with cotton, nylon, and elastin for a little stretch. I am seriously obsessed with my Thinks underwear. They have changed my periods. Try them yourself or get someone the best gift ever with a sweet little discount code. Go to shethinks.com slash Carly for $10 off your order today. Again, that's she thinks.com forward slash C A R L Y for $10 off your order. Try thinks today.
1: Interesting. So, um, I was, I came from a Catholic upbringing, mm-hmm. uh, but I went to, uh, school where there was sex ed. So okay. it wasn't a Catholic school. Um, I didn't have the, I love the, like condom down the arm because it communicates two things, a protection, but Mm -hmm. b that issue of consent and manipulation that can happen. And I mean, like guys are just doing what they're being taught to do by other guys, by pornography, by Mm -hmm. the videos and movie content that they watch. So conditioning works in both ways. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I didn't have that message, but I did my one, uh, my one block of sex ed that I remember was my PE teacher starting the block, putting a condom on a banana Mm -hmm. and ending the block with spermicidal foam just everywhere. Oh my God. Oh, that (laughs) escalated quickly. (laughs) He was trying to show us how to like
0: load it up and it just like, (sighs) and you'll never forget it ever, ever. Will you forget that? (laughs) Hermit so, foam everywhere feels like the title yeah. of something. I'm not sure what yet, but it feels like the title of something. It should be. It should be. Um, so I did have some
1: sex ed, but it was okay. all based on uh, preventing young women from getting pregnant. Right. Right. right, right there was right, no, right. there was no communication around consent. Um, it was just very like, whatever you do, don't get knocked up. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um, so, yeah, I mean, I grew up too in the time of my parents were very, children should be seen and not heard. Got it. And I didn't get really any relationship advice growing yeah. up. Um, so, yeah, I had to really figure it out on my own. Um, and we didn't have, you know, social media back then with all these like lovely carousels of, you know, this is consent, this is what yeah. consent doesn't look like. Right. So, On the one hand, you know, the kids growing up in high school right now, they do have access to all this information online, but they also have so many more pressures than we did. And I think, I wonder sometimes if my whole authentic sexuality spiel comes from the fact that I really did get to take my time, Mm. you know, Um, I have a pretty extensive abuse history from when I was younger and I went to quite like my life was very sheltered when I was in high school and I think I was 20 before I had sex for the first time, 21 Mm -hmm. before I had my first boyfriend. Mm -hmm. And because of some of the dynamics in my family, there weren't expectations for me to really like meet any kind of, um, standards. Yeah. 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 (laughs) They didn't really, I, they kind of had these like Really high expectations that they didn't really expect me to live up to. So in a way, it was sort of this weird balance of like, okay, so it doesn't matter. Right, right. (laughs) Um, anyway, so as a result, I really got to take my time and um and not I didn't feel pressured Mm -hmm. to explore or to have boyfriends or to, you know, do things before I was ready. Um, And that I know is really rare. Um, I really I chose to to lose my virginity with a friend. It was like completely. He didn't know that it was happening, but um, that I he didn't know that I was losing my virginity with him. He knew that we were having sex. It was sent there, but um, it was unlike (laughs) unlike a lot of a lot of us like you know, I, I really, I'm really grateful that I got to have that experience and be like completely in control of that first experience. They didn't all follow that same, you know, trend, but at least Mm -hmm. in the beginning, um, it felt spacious. Let's just say that I felt like I had a lot of space around my development. So, um, isn't that a gift? Yeah, it is, you know, parental neglect. <laughs>
0: really good things there's, there's positives, I guess, <laughs> that come out of it. Not that that was yeah. a gift, but you know, the, the no, fact that you had no. space is quite yeah. lovely. And you 100%. bring up social media. And so I'm 29 and mm-hmm. I had, I'm like, I feel like the last age group that didn't have social media in school uh, yes. because mm-hmm. Facebook was just becoming a thing when I was in high school And I mean, I, I think I had, like, I had one and we would write back and forth on people's walls, but it was just people I was going to see the next day and be like, see you at softball practice. (laughs) And like, (laughs) that was it. It was a glorified MySpace at that time. And so it didn't, it, I didn't ever feel pressure. I didn't care about pictures on there. Really. I, I mean, it was, that was it. That was the only thing I can really think of in like instant message. And I would be staying up really late with the lights off and doing one letter at a time. So my mom wouldn't hear the keyboard chatting boys, but she always did somehow cause she's a mom. But I feel like now I actually said the other day, and it makes me feel like old now that I'm saying this, but I'm like, I'm so glad. I'm so glad that I grew up when I did in terms of coming to age, because knowing myself back then, I think that could have really crumbled me. I think that really could have been detrimental to my sense of self. I have a pretty strong sense of self. And I think that would have been really hard for that to exist. Instagram and TikTok and what, I mean, name it. I don't know. I, there's probably 7,000 I'm not even aware of, but I like at this point, I'm like, sure. Yeah, <laughs> that one, that app. Um, but how is social media influencing this conversation? Cause there are so many positives and there are so many negatives.
1: Yeah. So, so will we focus on sort of young people or do you want to open it up to, I'll, I'll cover the gamut. Yeah. Cover the gamut. Cause I'm
0: kind of curious about mm-hmm. both. So there's a, I want to be very careful about the
1: words I choose.
0: Mm-hmm. That's okay. Take your time. I understand. So,
1: um, Sex positivity is a wonderful thing. Right, and there are right. so many shame filled acts and practices and preferences um, that people haven't been allowed to explore and honor in themselves because of the sexual repression of
0: mm.
1: our world. Yeah. As we dispel shame, for all of those acts and practices and preferences, we have to be very careful to not create a culture of coercion
0: Mm -hmm.
1: for everyone for whom that isn't part of what they want to experience. Yeah. Right. So the thing, one example that I use, because this is young, young couples, say like late teens who are just having their first experiences of sexual relationships. There's a lot of experimentation Mm-hmm. happening and young guys are using women's bodies not because they're malicious and they're horrible um but because of their you know they're reenacting what they see on pornography yeah um there's a lot of experimentation using women's bodies as sort of laboratories of what's going to happen
0: yes so i I've, experienced that Yes,
1: yeah, right so you know i've heard stories of girls ending up in you know uh, hospitals needing medical attention because something was stuck somewhere where it shouldn't be. Oh my God. Or, um, right. And uh, this is
0: all like, Hey, let's try this. This would be cool. And then probably this is where the fawning conversation comes in. Mm-hmm. And you know, girls love
1: their boyfriends and they want to participate and everybody else is doing it. Be a cool girl. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So it's, this is why the I really am trying to insert the fawning awareness into our conversations around sex positivity as a you know tool of harm reduction. So it's not about saying, you know, don't do anal. It's like, how are we now making anal the new bar that or whatever, you yeah, know, yeah, whatever it is the new bar that yeah. these young girls have to reach in order to be acceptable to their partners. Mm. So there's a lot of research that's been done around, and again, like we're, pardon my heteronormativity, but this was, you know, the study was uh, around women and boys Mm -hmm. and male-female pairs. Mm -hmm. Um, Young girls are completely aware of the pornography that their male counterparts are watching. And they have, by the time they're, you know, reaching 13, 14, they have anxiety about what they're going to be expected to do with their partners Mm -hmm. and the various different dangerous things that they know that they're watching and then expecting them to, to play out. So, I mean, the fear is real and our concerns are legitimate. So in terms of how social media is playing out, we really just have to be careful about the messaging that we're sending to young people, especially, you know, a 30, 40 year old person can discern for themselves they've had you know maybe 10 20 years of serious relationships to be able to go on but um young folks are are at risk because we have this increase in intensity and what's being seen in pornography and we have more media to to show like I mean that didn't exist when I was growing up like you couldn't I don't know like there were there was playboy Right. There were there were magazines. But people just read it for the articles. Come on. (laughs) But like, you know, to your point of not growing up with social media, there was no access to there was no red tape. There was no, you know, whatever the other one is, Mm -hmm. Mm pornhub. Um, and there was also no awareness of ethical pornography. So um we're really in this time where I feel like we're kind of scrambling. -hmm. To get this information of safety out there as fast as all the other potentially harmful content is being funneled into these young people's brains. Wow. Mm -hmm.
0: It's one of those things where sometimes I look at things that young people that I know in my life are posting, and I'm like, okay, I'm not so scared for the future. These young Mm -hmm. women are badass. They They they, really are. They know who they are on a whole different level they're expressing themselves. And then um, you, you know, you see that flip side of the coin where you're like, oh my gosh, is this them is part of this them? Or are they fawning now not to keep using that term, but I mean, it really does describe what's happening. Um, So it's uh, yeah, it's hard to, and the, the weird thing is that we're kind of in the midst of figuring out what does that do to people long-term? Yes. I mean, we don't totally know yet.
1: No, it's still very new, mm-hmm. you know, and we know that social media is designed to be addictive. So it's triggering our addiction pathways and basically activating our nervous systems. It's rewiring billions of people's of human nervous systems every day. So, you know, it's, it's more important than ever to be really, um, discerning around our social media and computer practices. So, yeah, but that's hard to, to you know, explain to young kids who've been grown up with social media from the time they, you know, came out of the womb. So, um, yeah,
0: I teach yoga to fourth and fifth graders and a bunch of different grades at different schools in the area. And I walked into, and it's a small town and I grew up here. So, I mean, that's just one thing, but I walked into the gym and it was fifth graders that day. And one girl was like, I know you, I've seen you on Facebook. You're consciously Carly. And it was just like, had this She's fifth grade. And I was just like, Oh God, what do I, what do I post on there? <laughs> like, I don't, I'm not posting anything I'm yeah. embarrassed of, but I'm like, what am I posting for this fifth grader that is now seeing me as her yoga teacher? And I ultimately was like, Oh, that's the internet. That's I, yeah. there's, that's what open business pages are. There's no turning back now, but it was so, I was like fifth grade. I felt so old being like, how old are you? You have a Facebook account. She was just looking at me like, okay, grandma, but it was wild to me. Yeah, It was wild. it's,
1: It's, uh, it's so hard because it's not going away. Right. You know, like, um, But I do, I mean, more and more research is coming out every year about the effects of technology on Mm -hmm. our relationships. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, I think there was a great article, I think it was in the New Yorker, and it was talking about this research that was done on young people, fifth graders, kids who were tweens and early teens, who were begging their tech-addled parents for emotional connection who were actually acknowledging themselves because it was a need that they were having that wasn't being fulfilled by, wow. you know, their 40, 50 year old parents who had, you know, been like blackberry warriors in the nineties. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, <Blackberry> um, warriors <laughs> uh, God, blackberries geez. Um, anyway. Yeah. So I think that, there are more and more people who are drawing their attention to it, and it is obviously something that tech companies and apps need to be mindful of because they're affecting the health and well-being of the global population. Yeah, so.
0: generations. Mm-hmm. Yes. Wild. Yes, totally. So we're in the midst of a pandemic. There is no no beating around that bush, and mm-hmm. I imagine that or I don't know, maybe I'm making an assumption here that that has changed the landscape of what you're talking about with people. And, you know, there is, there was like the first year there was jokes about, you know, people having babies and people Mm -hmm. were gonna get home. Although the only people I saw having children were people that didn't already have children. I think the ones that already did were like, no, we're good, we're stuck at (laughs) home with them. Um, But how is this- the last two years changed the conversation around intimacy and relationships. Like what is that, what has that done for us?
1: Oh my goodness. We could have a show on this alone. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, you know, to start we can talk about the effect of lockdowns on Mm. people who are already in relationships. We Mm -hmm. saw a lot of breakups.
0: Yeah. um,
1: A lot of increase in domestic violence. Yes. Huge increase in domestic violence. It was, um, it doubled in Canada. Oh um, my goodness. Yeah. As did the severity of the injuries. Um, there in the UK, there were people blaming COVID for killing their partners. (laughs) Yeah. Like it was, it's the pandemic. There's the, the UN has called it the shadow pandemic and um, they've uh, identified it as they're calling it a, you know, legitimate human rights crisis, the, the violence against women, like widespread violence against women across the globe. So um, that's the, that's kind of one of the most physically and obviously damaging effects Mm -hmm. of the pandemic um, is the increase in. And not just domestic, but like physical violence, but emotional as well. You know, everyone was locked down. People were stuck together and any kind of lingering or unaddressed issues just, you know, became impossible to ignore. So clearly there were folks that broke up as a result of that, but some are still in those entanglements. Right. And so I really feel feel for that because having been in an abusive relationship myself and struggling to get out, I can't imagine what it would have been like to try and get out in the middle of a pandemic. Right. Um, So that's probably the first effect of the pandemic on intimacy and sex. Um, The other piece is the fact that the pandemics really changed our relationship to our bodies. We are not in our pleasure bodies. We're in our stress bodies. Yes. Yes. we need to be in our pleasure bodies to be able to connect with one another, to be able to uh, have really lovely eye contact, to be able to read one another's emotional state. So A, it's harder for folks to connect mm-hmm. on that, you know, subconscious, physiological mm-hmm. level, but B, there's all the fears of kissing someone again, you know, yeah. if single. it's like, oh my gosh, you have cooties. Yes, seriously. And it's not, it's not,
0: um, like it's not imagined. It's (laughs) so, so it's so weird. I had a friend who was going to go to New York and I was like, Ooh, are you going to maybe meet anyone? And I was like, Oh, Oh, it's, are you going to (laughs) meet anyone? No, I don't know.
1: This is weird now. Yeah. It's completely changed you know, courtship practices. I mean, a lot of, some people are still out, um, you know, hooking up and, you know, being safe with the, with Show being, your the whatever. <laughs> um, but I think even for people who are vaccinated, there's this fear, you know, because
0: people who are vaccinated can still get COVID. Mm-hmm. So, so there's a lot um, of, probably a lot of internalized fear then around We're we're take, I'm just guessing here. Do you totally mm-hmm. correct me? But what you said that I was like, wait, we're taking in all this fear around relationships. And that fear is probably sticking in our brains around sex and intimacy in a new way. So we're going to be fearful of that and connect that in our brain.
1: And on like an unconscious body level. So when we wire stress responses to our arousal systems, we, you know, again, we're wiring ourselves for more of the same. So it's more important than ever to be connecting to our authentic arousal. And yeah. be really coming from a place of being grounded um, and regulated, which is not easy to do in this time. Wow. Mm-hmm.
0: There's a lot to, there, like you said, that could be a whole show in and of itself. I know. There's a lot to yeah. unpack there, but I am weighing my, I'm like, okay, maybe not so many questions, but maybe a well, part I mean, two, for it. <laughs> maybe, a, maybe a part two someday on oh, just yeah. sure. this or something, because huh. I think there's a lot to go into there. Cause there maybe can be some, I don't know. I'm just an optimist at heart, uh, just a little Pisces that totally. wants everyone to be happy and healthy. And I'm mm-hmm. like, what, but what, what can, what can we get from this? What will maybe what will we gain in our sex and intimate relationships because of this time? And I don't know that
1: I can answer that for
0: you. Please do.
1: We gain better communication skills.
0: Yeah, We're having
1: conversations that we never would have had before way early on in the game. Yeah. We're getting, to ha- like, yeah. We're getting to like the things that we wouldn't, we'd wait for like 10 or 20 dates for we're like, okay, so let's get on this. That's so true. So I do see like as as harmful and upsetting and you know destructive to our way of life that of the course. pandemic has been there have been some really wonderful effects to it namely this conversation around you know you're going to put yourself in my body yeah and whether you know that maybe it takes a, a virus in order for us to get there but really I see that this covid is actually helping us have more conversations around consent
0: interesting
1: so it's i mean in terms of dating yes it slows things down yes it makes us more fearful but i think that it also teaches us more about ourselves and more Mm -hmm. about our needs more about our standards and boundaries so it's a huge you know growth um initiative but the oh the other piece there was something else i was gonna oh yeah The thing that I share with people who are feeling really tentative about re-entering the dating space is to use this time to um, gift yourself an experience of intentional celibacy. So Mm. maybe you take six months and you just deep dive into your own pleasure and you explore certain practices, certain tools. I have in the book, I actually, I should say, so the book approaches um, this whole issue from a, identify the issue, get to the underlying pieces, and then let's here have some tools that we can use. Nice. Nice.
0: So um,
1: one of the tools that I talk about in the book is intentional celibacy. And there are some structures that people can use for approaching that. When I first dove into those waters, I didn't have any framework. I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just right. not having sex. Right. And it took me a while to actually be like, okay, well, what am I actually doing here? What do I want to learn about myself? What do I want to learn about other people? How can I bring my best self into the bedroom and ensure that I have mutually beneficial, intimate experiences? Right. So um, it's really when you, you know, take, take it away and just say, I'm shutting the door to dating and focusing on what my relationship to sex and intimacy is. It's just, It's unreal. What comes up because again, no one gave us that opportunity. You know, when I was like 18 or 16, no, I didn't get sat down and be like, So you are a sexual being and you get to evolve in whatever way at whatever pace that you want to. Here are some things you can try. Here are some things you cannot try. Damn, that would have been nice. Right. I like, I think sometimes a lot of my work that I do, I'm really like, trying to reparent my I was just 16, gonna say you're parenting yeah totally around sex which none of us got yeah none of us got that sort of really loving gentle you are a sexual being and you have a sexuality and it's beautiful whatever it is mm-hmm. kind of conversation so
0: yes Wow. Mm-hmm. wow 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 so is there anything that you want to share or talk about that I didn't give you space to that you think mm-hmm. would be important for listeners right now It's not a trick question. No, I know. I'm just trying to
1: think. Um, I feel like we covered a lot of really great ground. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess the only thing that we didn't mention was that fawning is something that we learn when we're really young. Mm. And just the same way as our... So it's pretty, you know, widely accepted that our early attachment experiences, our attachment experience with our parents color or inform the experiences that we have in relationships, romantic relationships. They affect how we choose our partners, how we respond to closeness and space. Yeah. Um, but what we don't often look at is the way those attachment experiences affect us in the bedroom. And we don't Mm -hmm. want to, because it's icky to think that your parents had anything to do with who you are, you know, in bed. Icky Um, is the right word. (laughs) Right. But the, the thing we have to understand about pleasure is that our, you know, pleasure is not, so I don't have a different nervous system for processing sexual pleasure versus processing non-sexual or sensual pleasure. Right. It's one spectrum. Right. And my first experiences of pleasure happened when I was, the, the moment I was born and I was being mm. held by someone, I was safe. I had mm. someone, you know, with loving tones of voice communicating how much they loved me,
0: yeah, you know?
1: Um, and even if you, you know, say we adopted or um, were born prematurely, there was touch, there were people caring for you and proving to you that you weren't dying, the world wasn't ending, that everything was going to be okay. So those early attachment experiences totally affect how we relate to pleasure for the rest of our lives. yeah. And, you know, obviously as well in the bedroom. So that's, I think the only piece that we didn't touch on is is that's very important is how our early attachment experiences are affecting how we approach sex and intimacy,
0: which totally circles back to this idea of reparenting, yes. with the people that you're working with and ourselves mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. around
0: sex and intimacy. Yeah. Where can people get a hold of you or find the book or follow along? Because I know people are going to be yeah. like, "I want more." <laughs> so my um, I- Instagram is nisha
1: fair n i s c h a p h a i r. the book you can find there or on my website nishafair.com uh, the e-version is currently available now by the time this airs might have
0: you said 2 weeks um with it somewhere in, in january, january let's say january.
1: okay yeah it might it might be on amazon by then um okay. sort of putting the final touches on that but i can give you all the links for the show notes so
0: awesome that would be great Um, (laughs) Thank you so much for joining and being here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Consciously Clueless. If you enjoyed this episode, hit subscribe wherever you're listening. If that's somewhere like Apple Podcasts, leave a review and you could be read on air as the review of the week looking for more podcast content, yoga videos, meditations, and all-around amazing community, head over to patreon.com slash consciouslycarly and check out what's going on. And finally, if you are ready to make changes in your life but don't really know where to begin, let's work together. Head over to consciouslycarly.com and we can start the process and get you happy. Until next time.